through streets paved with gold Lifted some stones, saw the skin and bones Of a city without a soul I stopped outside a church house Where the citizens like to sit They say they want the kingdom But they don't want God in it Yeah, I went with nothing Nothing but the thought of you I went wandering Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. I'm standing here with a good friend, Naya. Naya, say hello to the audience. Hello. Naya, tell the audience where you're from. I'm from San Antonio, Texas. San Antonio, Texas, and uh, you have some brothers, I hear. How old are they, and what are their names? My oldest brother is 11, and his name is Drake, and I... My youngest brother is um, nine, I think, and his name is Donald. Drake and Donald, and you're Naya, and Naya, you're, you're uh, 22, right? No. You're 10. 10, yes. And what do you enjoy in school? It's your favorite subject you told me before. Science. She's a future scientist and a great Christian. Is there anything you'd like to say to the audience who's looking at you right now and who will be looking at you in the future? Any message you want to leave them, go ahead. So hard. I love the Lord. I love the Lord. Very good, very good. Thank you, Naya. You go on right over there. That was brave, it's not easy to do that. Heart of the Matter can be seen through live television, through streaming video at www.hotm.tv and in our archives at the same website, all over the web, especially at YouTube. Wherever you're watching from, we welcome you. We have a weekly never-denominational Bible study. Everybody's welcome at the University of Utah from 2.30 to 3.30 p.m. Uh, God willing, we're there every single week. Go to calvarycampus.com for more information. And while you're driving into the Bible study, you tune into AM820, The Truth, and from 1 to 2 p.m., and you can hear replays of Heart of the Matter right there on that great radio station here in the Salt Lake Valley. Speaking of AM820, Pastor Terry Long from Calvary Chapel, Salt Lake City, and I spent an hour in discussion, uh, and that, that discussion was taped, and it's going to be on his program, Homeward Bound, this coming Friday at 5 p.m. right there on AM820 Truth. So check that out. Two books, not for free, but worth the read in our humble opinion. First, if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. I'm supposed to be holding that up right now, but I don't have it. Uh, if In it, we take a look at modern American Christianity in an effort to see if we're right uh, on the right track or not. We're getting some good reviews, and only time will tell if the bookstores around the area are going to carry it. Uh, If they don't do that, you can always get it at www.hotm.tv. And look at this. Look at that. It's magic around here. I say and it pops up. So there's how that one looks. Also, if you order this book, you'll get a free copy of the Bible versus the Book of Mormon 
which is a great uh, gift, an excellent video. And then the second book, of course, is uh, I Was a Born Again Mormon, and that one's available at Lifeway Christian Bookstores, Christian Gift and Bible, Calvary Chapel, Salt Lake, uh, Utah Lighthouse Ministry, Oasis Books in Logan, Gift of Grace in Springville, Living Word Bookstore in Twin Falls, Idaho, Christian Center Books in Park City, and, of course, also online at hotm.tv. For the rest of the month, the Salt Lake uh, Rescue Mission has a drive to help keep those less fortunate warm. It is freezing out there tonight here in the 1st of February. So uh, you can join us by bringing your gently used and new uh, winter coats for men or women into the lobby of KTMW TV 20 right here uh, between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Uh, Monday through Friday. TV 20 is located at 314 South Redwood Road. It's south of the I-80 and just north of 400 South. They are greatly needed and greatly appreciated, so consider doing that. Let's hear from the Word. We're supposed to have a graphic. <laughs> Come back on. Tonight in the first four verses of Matthew chapter 4, we come to the retelling of an interesting event. Jesus is being by, uh, tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Verse 1 says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. So Jesus went up to the wilderness, and after 40 days and nights, he got hungry, and of course, Satan shows up. Verse 3 says, And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now, we can go through the whole story and talk about how Satan tempts Jesus with three specific temptations. But that is not the point of my uh, discussion tonight. The point is... How did Jesus respond to Satan regarding these temptations? On every, in response to every single temptation, Jesus said, It is written. It is written. It is written. Did Jesus trust what he was reciting as being written? How could he? I mean, he was speaking of the Old Testament books that were to him at least 450 years of age. And at the most, like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Job, at least 1,400 years of age. And yet, when we consider the New Testament manuscript uh, data, many of the Old Testament texts were older to Jesus when he was saying that to Satan, it is written. The Old Testament was older to him than many New Testament manuscripts were to the men who translated it into the Latin, into the German, and into English. What specifically did Jesus say to Satan after the first temptation to turn the stones into bread? It's in verse 4. He said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. How? How could man live by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God if those words weren't available to us? or if those words weren't translated correctly? Why would Jesus suggest this if it weren't possible? What Jesus didn't say is, you'll notice he didn't say, man shall, um, 
not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, as far as they're translated correctly, Jesus just absolutely was certain there talking to Satan about ancient manuscripts. It is written, it is written, it is written. You can trust it, you can trust it, you can trust it. This is before Joseph Smith got a hold of it and said that you can't trust it. Once you accept that you can trust the word of God completely, the whole story of your spiritual life will begin to change. All right, how about some emails? Uh, this is from Chris, who calls himself Parsley Sage. Parsley Sage, Rosemary, and Thyme. Uh, he says he is writing me. He's a Christian out of concern and conviction over my answer last week to a caller named Alan about mocking. He went on for quite a large, long email saying that it was out of context, essentially, Jesus didn't mock. He was warning the Pharisees. He knew their heart. Well, I'm not Jesus. I can't do that. My whole thing is to uh, do it in love, and I agree with that. He talked about the story. I talked about Elijah, how, what he, and then he writes, I want to keep watching your show because I enjoy 90% of it. That is just not acceptable to me, Chris. But I am frequently stunned when you are so rude and unchristian-like in your attitude, uh, especially to those who challenge you. He says he's, uh, he, it says that I'm not confident in the things I'm talking about, and he perceives a different spirit. He says, please note that I didn't mock you in this. I contended for the truth. There is a difference. And then he tells me, all that being said, he really likes me. Well, I want you to understand a couple things, Chris. One-on-one -on -one with Latter-day Saints, with, with missionaries, with bishops, stake presidents, members of my family, other LDS people out on the street, you're going to find that I don't do anything but just talk to them and, and share Jesus with them. And there is no hostility. There is no anger. There is no mocking. But you've got to understand a two-letter word, TV, okay? There is a reason I do what I do. And it is to get people in, sitting there to get anxious, to not like this, to prove me wrong, to say he, they don't like me, to tell their friends, to just see that donkey on the TV last night. Can you believe how he talks? And says, now you can say, well, that's just not the Lord's way. And I would agree with you when you're dealing with people, but there is an, a, an element of entertainment. There's an element of keeping an audience. There's an element of provoking people to thought. And there is a time when Latter-day Saints will call this show and they will attempt to sway a very large viewing audience that they are Christian, that they do believe in grace uh, by faith, that they are uh, uh, saved by uh, the blood of Jesus only. They will do that. And I am going to mock them on those times when they will. Now, we have other Latter-day Saints who call and they're not in that spirit. They just want to find out. And I won't do it, Chris, but you just have to kind of go along with it if you want to continue to enjoy the 90% of the show that you watch. And maybe you can turn the volume down on the parts that you don't. Okay, um, Durrell, we have a guy named Durrell. I think he, well, anyway, uh, Durrell says that last week's uh, comparing Matthew 2.15 to Hosea 11, that uh, I'm a Neoplatonist Trinitarian. He says, I'm trapped by my own bogus inheritance view, but given your show's absence of thinking, reflection, and well-read callers and audience members, he's talking about you guys, I'm sure you will amaze somebody. 
Uh, Durr, is, Durr is very angry at me for things. He writes quite a bit. And I just want you to know that the analysis of Matthew 2.15 and Hosea 11.1 1 is perfect. In fact, I had somebody walk up to me last week and say, hey, do you know about this verse in uh, Hosea 11? Uh, one, did you know that, do you understand how that works in Matthew? And we had a discussion on it and he hadn't even seen the show. So Durr, I think you need to open up your Bible and read a little more and you'll be okay. Ada writes, she just watched a daytime talk show, The View, and saw Mitt Romney talking about running for president. Um, of the questions asked about Rodney's Mormonism, he of course totally downplayed the role of Mormonism during the interview and it was suggested that religion of the candidates shouldn't be an issue. Uh, just last night on the news, they talked about Mormon John Huntsman running for president. Do you think this is how Mormons are going to take over the country and the world politically or otherwise? Can the Mormon church give them money for their campaign funds? What are your feelings on this? I'm going to talk tonight more about my feelings on that, just to prime you for that. And finally, Carrie uh, writes, Sean, I've been enjoying the show, praying often, uh, feeling outreach to Mormons. Uh, go on and on, says that she attended a Gladys Knight concert and how Gladys Knight and another man gave a very articulate, convincing, humorous testimony about the importance and truth of Mormonism to the whole audience who was there to see her perform uh, her performances. And I just want to say to uh, Carrie, it's the beginning. Mormonism is humanism guised as Christianity. You have to understand that. And as time goes on, the Christian world is going to be bifurcated into two great polarized camps. You're going to have one camp that is going to be enthralled with the beauty of Mormonism, their, their floral arrangements and their billion-dollar conference centers and their refined speakers and their chiseled-looking apostles. And you're going to have people going that way and saying, well, they just must be Christian. They are so bright and glowing. And then you're going to have other Christians who read the Bible and run the other way. So just watch. I promise you, you'll see it. All right. With that, let's have a word of prayer. Lord God in heaven, uh, like Chris pointed out, I fail sometimes and we need you. Uh, if we, we pray, Lord, you will bless our staff who come and volunteer to do this, who give their time and their talents. We pray for our audience members. We pray for those who are seeking. We pray for me as the host of this program that you will be with us as we strive to share truth with people. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so you may or may not know this about me, but um, I seek things to kind of be as they are when they're presented to me. If I go into a burger joint and they say, uh, sir, your burger is going to be skimpy and it's not going to taste very good. When I get it, I don't care. I've ordered it and they've told me the truth. That's fine. But if they say it's going to be big, fat and delicious and then it's skimpy and, and ugly, that bothers me tremendously. Uh, this is especially true when it comes to religion. Now, when I was LDS, they told me many, many things about my faith. I believed them. I faithfully trusted their promises, the songs they taught me to sing, and their recitation of their history. But I later learned that those things were not as they said. When I became a Christian, I began, I began hearing some of the same statements over and over again by Christian friends around me, and I took them as fact. But... Uh, the more and more I'm around, I see that those statements aren't necessarily true either, 
when generally applied, uh, uh, and they aren't usually embraced, except for guys like me who like things, if they're said literally, to do them literally. For instance, I've always heard that b believers should look to the Bible for their answers to things. I believe that. And so I look to the Bible for my answers to cultural applications, to how I live, to how I think, to what I do. I also heard that believers should trust in the Lord with all their heart and lean not into their own understanding, to trust in the Lord with situations. And yet when I look around, I don't see that always happening with many of my brothers and sisters who are Christians. I see them instead not trusting in the Lord, but trusting in their own understanding on how to handle themselves in this world. I took these statements and others like them as real and viable, still do, but get pretty agitated when believers will state them, but they don't believe them as a whole. We left off two weeks ago discussing a question Jesus posed to the Pharisees. He said, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from man? That was the question Jesus asked the Pharisees. And we know that the Jews would have gone to the word of God to find out their answer if they were true Jews. They would have looked to see where their prophecies about John the Baptist to say whether he was from heaven or from man. When we discussed how the LDS look at their feelings, that they, that they resort to emotionalism to determine their truth. They don't go to the word of God to determine the truth, but they, they test it by their feelings. And I suggested two weeks ago that Christians today are unfortunately doing or embracing the very same practice. As an extreme case in point, we showed you a photograph of three men, two of whom we could identify. Let's show them to you now. We, showed, we said that the blonde man's name is Reverend Paul Hill, and the man next to him in the middle is named Reverend Michael Bray, okay? You know, the uh, appellation reverend is just kind of, I don't know, offensive to me. The word means um, something that should be revered, something or someone who should be reverenced. I don't know about you, but the only person in, in the Bible that needs to be refer reverenced is the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyway, the reverends Hill and Bray. Somehow they got it into their holy little reverend heads that it was their job as Christians to fight against the sin in this world because they believed, outside of what the Bible says, that it was their duty. Maybe you've witnessed other actions like this done in the name of Christian duty before. Various levels of Christian militancy have been around since Peter took his own sword out and chopped off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant, when they tried to take Jesus away. The question is, is it right to respond this way? Do believers have a duty to fight sword against sword, lawsuits with lawsuits, or gay parades with Protestant protestations? Well, the reverends Hill and Bray seem to think they did. And the, the sin that particularly irked them and was the admittedly ugly sin of abortion. So in 1984, a Reverend Bray, feeling inspired, jumped into a little yellow Honda one early morning and with another believer drove to Dover, Delaware. Their mission, to destroy an abortion clinic so he said he could, quote, stop the business of butchering babies. From heaven or from man? A year later, Reverend Bray was convicted of torching a total of seven clinics from Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, and the District of Columbia and was sentenced to prison, his head held high, until 1989. 
Now, interestingly, while his actions were certainly extreme, Reverend Bray as a man was the antithesis of extreme. Anyone who had ever interacted with him described him as uh, handsome and cheerful and intelligent, a great student of the Bible who possessed charm and quiet, calm demeanor. They're quite the opposite of what you'd expect from him and his actions. Since getting out of prison, uh, Reverend Bray has become the publisher of the nation's most militant Christian newsletter. It's called the Capital Area Christian News, and it focuses on Christian retaliation or oxymoronically Christian war aimed primarily at things like abortion, homosexuality, and back when Clinton was in office, what Bray called the administration's pathological abuse of governmental power, end quote. Idiomatically, this stuff sounds Christian, but is it? Is it from heaven or is it from man? Now, a Reverend Bray had a friend, that guy right next to him, Reverend Paul Hill. Like Bray, Reverend Hill firmly believed it was his Christian duty to just do something about the evil direction that this world was taking. So in 1994, he walked up and point-blank shot Dr. John Britton and his volunteer escort dead as they drove up to a Pensacola, Florida abortion clinic. Earlier that year, another associate of Bray's, Mrs. Shelley Shannon, a simple Christian housewife from Oregon, became convinced that she too had a more extreme Christian duty to perform in society, and after a string of abortion clinic bombings, she was caught and convicted uh, and sentenced to 11 years in prison for shooting Dr. George Tiller in both of his arms for performing abortions. Dr. Tiller survived and recovered. 16 years later, as he was leaving the Presbyterian Church where he served as a volunteer usher, Christian activist Scott Roeder picked up where Shelley Shannon left off and shot him dead in the parking lot of his church, which bore the cross of our Lord that taught us to do the exact opposite. The opposite. In the face of all this, our blonde-headed reverend friend, Mr. Bray, wrote a book titled A Time to Kill. And in it, he justified all terrorist actions, including all I just mentioned, in the Christian war against abortion. From heaven or from man? Let me add a question. And where do we draw the line on Christian social activism? Now, remember, each of these people had long embraced all the core issues of biblical Christianity as their own. But over time, they each became disillusioned to some extent or another with the biblical command to just have faith and love and hope and to contend for the faith. And they decided they needed to do more. Aren't we hearing Christians being told they need to do the same today? Not to that extreme, but we need to do more. The reverends at Al all began seeing themselves as crusaders out fighting for the cause of purifying the world in the name of Jesus, something he never asked any of us to do. In time, they all became increasingly involved in what is known as Christian social activism and looked for the day when they would begin to ignite, quote, a new moral order, one based on biblical law and spiritual rather than a secular social compact, end quote. Bray and Hill found justification for their actions by looking back in history at a handful of men who Christians hold up as heroes of Christian activism. I'm going to mention two of them now. If you've been Christian long enough, you've heard of a man named William Wilberforce. 
He was a Christian man, once an extreme knave like myself, who once found himself saved, began to fight to release slaves in uh, the British Isles. Many, many socially-minded Christians today use Wilberforce's social activism to justify everything from protecting our borders from invading aliens to protesting against homosexuals, abortion, and evolution, all in the name of Jesus. The question we need to ask ourselves is, did Wilberforce fight against slavery because he was a Christian, or was he a Christian who simply fought against slavery? I would suggest the latter. In essence, Wilberforce was a Christian humanitarian. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, praise God for that. But um, it is quite similar to Gandhi being a Hindu humanitarian. It's what Gandhi did from the call he had on his heart as a Hindu. He happened to be a Hindu. Wilberforce, besides fighting long and hard for the abolishment of slavery, which was a great thing, also headed up societies like the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. He was a humanitarian in his heart, so good on him. But his repulsion of slavery and his activism for dirty one-eyed cats was not because he was a Christian. It was because Wilberforce was a humanitarian at heart. And that was how God made him. That is how God put a call on his life. This is very difficult to understand because some people don't realize that some Christians are called to be politicians. Some are called to be humanitarians and some are called to be plumbers. Um, we make a great mistake in trying to make all Christians all of those things. That's not our Christian call. What I'm saying is our actions and duties as Christians are here in the Bible. They tell us what we ought to be doing, not some, some sway that we're trying to save the nation. What we do against governments, animal butchers, and the sinful world is not a matter of Christian duty. Our Christian duty, of course, to love, forgive, serve the poor, have faith, share Jesus with others, and to contend with the faith. Nevertheless, socially and politically minded Christians today use Wilberforce as the poster child for what it means to be Christian. That's bad faith. Anyone, Christian or atheist, has the God-given right to fight against social ills like slavery, child abuse, or the decimation of the environment. We hope many believers are called to these things, but we do not commingle them being saved with the social duty to which they are called any more than to demand that every man on earth should be a tent maker because that's what Paul did for his living. Another Christian social savior frequently held up as a model for Christian actions, a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now Bonhoeffer was a German theologian and a Lutheran pastor who left a prominent research position in New York City during the Second World War to join a clandestine operation to assassinate Adolf Hitler. He was caught, up, caught for doing this in Germany and he was put to death for a failed attempt and he faced that firing squad courageously. Christian moral theorists like Reverends Hill and Bray cite Bonhoeffer as the reason why Christians today could, if necessary, undertake violent actions in a just cause and for a higher purpose. Again, Bonhoeffer, Christian or not, did what he was inclined to do as a man. Just as, I, just as there were, I'm sure, Christian Nazis who were doing just what they were called to do in fighting for Hitler when he recruited them and he was just, they were just following orders. Doesn't make it right. 
Uh, but Bonhoeffer's act in no way set a moral ground for all Christian people to follow. Using case studies like Bonhoeffer and Reinhold Niebuhr's writings, uh, Nyberg was a colleague of Bonhoeffer in college back in New York City. Um, Christian activism and moral reform began to gradually ramp up since that point in time, and it has infiltrated the body today. And in and through the door walks this ugly doctrine called dominion theology. What is it? It's this idea that Christianity must assert the dominion of God over all things, including secular society and politics. Michael Bray found a comfortable home with dominion theology, and it's no wonder, because televangelists like the Reverend Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, also dominion theologists, helped urge and surge this nation on to political activism in the 1980s and 90s. Terry Randall, founder of the extremely militant anti-abortion organization Operation Rescue, is a writer for Crosswinds, a dominion theory magazine. Its manifesto, brashly called Manifesto for the Christian Church, it's not the Christian Church I belong to, asserts, among other things, that America, quote, should function as a Christian nation and oppose such moral evils in secular society as abortion on demand, fornication, homosexuality, sexual entertainment, state usurpation of parental rights and God-given liberties, status collectivist theft from citizens through devaluation de of their money and redistribution of their wealth, and evolution taught as a monopoly viewpoint in public schools, end quote. Now, let me make myself perfectly clear before everybody turns the channel. As a Christian, I know God is not pleased with abortion and with fornication and homosexuality and sexual entertainment, etc., etc. I am pro-family values, marriage between a man and a woman. I support what the Bible instructs. I endorse clean entertainment and disagree with vice and drugs and all that in all of its forms. But we cannot... We cannot make the holy, egregious mistake of thinking that as his children, it is our Christian duty to rid this world of this stuff. God did something about it, folks, for us over 2,000 years ago. Something incomprehensible. He sent his son. And when his son came, he said something very, very important. He said, I did not come to condemn this world. He said, it's condemned already. He said, I came to save it. Do you understand what that logic does for people when you are a believer in him? This singular passage tells us plainly that to fight the world to condemn an already condemned world is futile. Our only response is to share Jesus with the people committing those sins. And it's the only way we will ever make an eternal mark. If you're a believer and God has placed it on your heart to take up feeding the homeless and sheltering widows and orphans or working at a methadone clinic, by all means do it. If God has called you to public office, by all means do it. But don't ever make the mistake of thinking that Jesus gave his life for us to change this fallen world or, to, uh, or that it is incumbent upon Christians to get an already condemned and blind world to reform without being spiritually reborn first. God gave himself so he could we could love those people to the cross. And yet, he, uh, until he returns to reign, we are going to more continually be faced 
with charlatans, political charlatans, television host charlatans, who are going to try to make you believe that there is hope in action, in public action, collectivist action from the body of Christ. And in walks a forerunner to an LDS president by the name of Glenn Beck. The man is praised as a constitutional stalwart who defends traditional family values from the evils of secular progressivism, socialism, and the like. Under the cloak for Christ, he screams, let's take back this country. And Christians are falling all over themselves to join in this parade. Beck is not so stupid to try and cleanse the world of sin through fire bombs and, and gunfire. But what is his vision? Who is his God? What is his Jesus and what does his Bible command him to do? Not the same things as it commands Christians to do. What many people do not understand about Mormonism is their universal worldview. Yes, they do seek to legislate here and there on issues of morality, but more importantly, they seek to embrace the whole world under its wings so that they can govern it through their priesthoods. When, El when uh, Glenn Beck, before he joined the church, he read a whole bunch of social uh, writers and he tried to find the truth about where to, how to govern the world. And his friend, Pat Gray, who was LDS and he was a, a, a business partner with him, said, hey, Glenn, why don't you check out Mormonism because of its comprehensive worldview? That's what he said. What is the LDS comprehensive worldview? It is certainly not the Christian comprehensive worldview. Perhaps a short story before we open up the phone lines will illustrate this point. From the Osgood Files of 2001, we read this headline, quote, Mormons pitch in to erect a Hare Krishna temple in Utah. The article goes on to say that Mormons in the town of Spanish Fork near Provo, Utah, are rolling up their sleeves to build a new Hare Krishna temple. The two faith groups are working side by side to construct the first Hare Krishna temple in America built from scratch. So far, an estimated 4,000 Mormons have pitched in on the weekend to help build the Sri Sri Radha Krishna temple, which translated means beautiful God and his queen. With a volunteer Mormon workforce and a $25,000 donation to the Hare Krishna building fund by the local Mormon bishop, the Krishnas hope to finish construction by June. And what are we to make of this? How are we to respond? With great trepidation. When we drift from the biblical edicts that tell us Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and it's only him, not dogmatically, not hatefully, not out seeking public revenge, but if we drift from this, you are going to suddenly start to embrace the more beautiful, the more apparently humanistic, all-embracing uh, philosophies out there like Mormonism presents. Run from it and share Jesus and truth and love. With that, let's open up the phone lines, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. Please turn down your television sets. We want first-time callers, if possible, and we'll go from there. We're going to run a spot right now for... Uh, um, Heart for Israel, we are pro-Israel, and uh, with all of the stuff that's going on over there now, with Egypt, etc., our prayers are with them, and we try to support them any way they can, and this is one way we do it.
And welcome back. Heart of the Matter, uh, we are uh, supported by your prayers, by your thoughts, by your sharing the program with your family and friends. And if you're in a position to uh, support us financially, it's greatly appreciated. We want you to do that as God leads and instructs, and, uh, and we appreciate it when uh, He does that in your life. You can go and to our website at hotm.tv and find out how you can partner with us or support us in these different ways. Uh, we really appreciate it and helps us stay on the air, so thank you so much. We have, it says Kendall, who is a boy who's LDS and he's a first-time caller. Let's try this out. Kendall, you're on Heart of the Matter. Um, hey, Sean. Uh, I'm, I'm LDS. I'm 17. I've, I'm calling with a personal question. Mm-hmm. I, well, I'm, I'm approaching a time when I'm, I've been looking into some of your videos and I've been, I've, especially with like the Book of Abraham and everything, I've been starting to like see some things in the church I, I haven't been exposed to, but um, I'm just asking, I'm just calling to ask like, would you, would you recommend like leaving the church at this point? Uh, well, or would you like say, sit it out and go on your mission? Uh, and make that decision at a later point. Let me ask you a couple questions, Kendall. Okay. What What do your parents say to you? My parents are both strong LDS. Um, my <laughs> my mom emphasizes that uh, at an early date she had this this manifestation that I'd be called to something special and. Um, especially with some of the stuff in my patriarchal blessing, you know. Yeah. They talk a lot about, I like, I, I'm going to serve in this special vineyard and everything, and um, it's they, they, a lot of pressure, like, there in the family, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, you're 17, and I believe in uh, the, the commandment to honor your father and mother. And so I believe that as a 17-year-old boy, you need to talk with them. Now, I want you to understand something that um, I, I believe you will not ever, ever go wrong, uh, Kendall, in going to your Heavenly Father directly in prayer and saying, Father, open my eyes, teach me the truth, and you tell me what to do. And I would suggest that above everything else is to go to your uh, uh, Heavenly Father and you ask him to open your eyes to the truth, and he will guide you in your actions. But I don't believe you're at a place in time that I would be doing right to say, don't go on that mission, fight uh, everything against your parents, leave the church right now. I've, I think that would be highly irresponsible of me, and I, I, even though I know Mormonism is wrong, and I know you've been lied to, and I know missions do harm to people, I believe that God, when he is in charge, is going to do better for you in your life and use you in a better way as you let him lead you. But you're young, and, you, and so it's tough. So I would just keep being informed. I would keep reading his word. I would keep praying to him, and I would be open with your parents about your thoughts. And just keep trusting in the Lord. Don't trust your parents in, in terms of their... They have something that they want you to embrace. Doesn't mean it's right. I have something I want you to embrace. I don't want you to disbelieve me. But you keep searching and trusting God, Kendall, and he will reveal himself to you. And it's not going to be through feelings. It's going to be through his word. Does that help at all? 
of course, yeah. Um, anything, you know, at this point, there, you know, there's uh, hardly anyone to talk to in this, you know, highly Mormon environment and about controversies like that, you know. Well, I'll tell you this much. If you email me, I promise you I'll drive up there and have lunch with you. <laughs> really? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, you email me, I'll come up to Cache Valley. I got a friend who's got a bunch of restaurants up there, and we'll go sit in one of those, and we'll talk. Okay. It's all right. So, do you have my email? I, I, I believe so. Okay, Kendall. Just put in the, in the uh, byline thing, or what it's about thing, just put, uh, hey, it's Kendall from the show. Okay. Okay, then we'll do that, and, uh, and go from there. Okay, thank you. Thanks All right, so you, you take care. You, you too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Okay, we're going to Mike in Riverside, California. He's a first-time caller on line four. Mike, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, hi, Sean. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How about you? Oh, you know, great. Uh, you know, I really liked your show. I've been watching it over the last uh, couple of years uh, out here in Riverside, California. And I just had one question. Yeah. Um, as far as uh, you sometimes mention the thief on the cross, as not being uh, baptized. Yeah. And I noticed that there's, you know, nowhere in Scripture that um, it, it seems like it's an assumption um, by a lot of people that he must not have been baptized. But I'm just wondering if that comes from, that he actually could have been baptized and then sinned later. Well, the thing about it is, is I, I'm sure that's possible, but John's baptism, and you have to remember in the book of Acts, they rebaptized everybody who was baptized in John's baptism to be baptized in the baptism of Christ. So if he had been baptized in John's baptism, that was not what was requisite for heaven. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which Christ came to do. So um, in terms of physical water baptism, if he had been baptized by John, had he stayed alive, he would have been rebaptized by the apostles later. The second thing is, is um, had he been baptized by John, it's highly unlikely he would have so quickly resorted to a life of crime because that baptism was a baptism unto repentance. It was an actual, literal a changing of the ways. It wasn't necessarily a uh, baptism to show faith. It was a changing of the ways. It is possible, though, so you bring out a good point. Okay, so he could have been baptized by John and then still later, later sinned, but we just don't know that. Yeah, but my point, my biggest point is, had he been baptized by John, that baptism would not have been efficacious in getting him into heaven because all believers were rebaptized into the name of Christ later. Okay, all right, good answer. And I, I just, uh, again, I really like your program. You're doing a great job, and I... Um, you know, just flying out there and doing all this, I think you're doing a, a great service to the people there in Utah. Thanks for watching, Mike. God bless. Okay. Bye-bye. We just lost a caller who said he didn't like the show, and I really wanted to talk to him. Is he on three? No? Uh, okay, uh, we're going to go to John in West Valley, first-time caller. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. Johnny? I'm pushing two. Two's not doing anything. I'm going to hang it up. Someone's talking to two. they got to hang up from that. Tiffany writes, thank you for the program. 
I am currently an active LDS member, married in the temple to a returned missionary, but we have many questions regarding the gospel and what it teaches. My husband just started doubting on his mission and didn't say anything to keep the peace in the family. Uh, she goes on and asks, how do you handle it? This is a question we often get. She's from San Antonio, Texas. How do you handle it when the family is just pressing on you? They have three children, four, five, and eight, and baptism is just around the corner. What do you do? How do you handle it with the pressure from the family saying, well, aren't you going to baptize Junior now? Aren't you going to baptize Junior? And I, we, I would suggest, or we would suggest, the ministry would suggest, hey, listen, what you might want to do is just um, say, well, we're letting our children choose for themselves. Instead of doing some perfunctory baptism where we just go and baptize a little eight-year-old's like, ah, getting wet, ooh, fun. We want them to choose to be baptized because they really do love the Lord. And, and then that buys you a little time to let the Lord continue to work. I do not suggest being that you're still LDS, your children are still all in it, families all in it. I don't suggest this raising the flag and saying, we're out, you guys are all going to hell. I just suggest that you love them. And you, you, I, I suggest you slip out and attend a, a good Christian Bible teaching church and find one that fits your needs and then begin to take your children there maybe every other Sunday. Say, how do you like this? And just slow assimilation so that the children can see it's not an act of rebellion. It's an act of submission to the Lord. Okay, so I hope that helps. Tiffany, you held up a sign to me, Natalie. I couldn't read it because my glasses aren't on. Oh, okay. Uh, let's go with uh, John in West Valley. Let's go with Dan in West Valley online too. Dan, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, um, I just have a simple question for you. I was just wondering which Bible do you think that it was translated the most proper English version of the Bible? Um, well, they say the ESV is potentially the best translation, but I am really particular to the King James. The only thing I, the reason I don't like the King James is the, is the Shakespearean language. But the King James, King, King James himself brought in those scholars who knew the Koine Greek. They knew the classical Greek and they could translate, I think, better than anybody today because we don't have a man alive today who knows what that Greek language, actually what it was. They are just using all their ability to go through. But the King James, those guys literally knew the Hebrew and the Greek better than anybody else. And that's why I like that translation. What about the MacArthur Bible, the study Bible? Are you familiar with it? You know what those all are? Those are the proprietary Bibles that Bible uh, or orators like John MacArthur and Chuck Smith, uh, Billy Graham, they will come out with their own version of the Bible, and usually those versions are written in the New King James or the NIV language, and then they call it the MacArthur Bible because MacArthur will add all of his notes to what each verse is saying. But those aren't translations. Those are just, uh, like I could come up with a McCraney Bible. It would be full of cartoons and, uh, and little jokes. And the, but that's, that's all those versions are. Okay, so King James, I guess, would be a pretty good... Unless you're bogged down by the these and thous. And then you yeah. can go with the new, the new King James, which takes those out. Okay, hey, thank you very much. You're welcome. God bless. Bye-bye. Okay, you know, when I mean cartoons, for those of you who don't get mad, I, in my Bible, I will draw a little cartoon to depict what's going on right, 
right there. So like if you go to Second Samuel, you go to Samuel and you read about Goliath, I'll show a little guy holding up a head of a Goliath. And then when I'm turning the pages, I see that, that little drawing and it tells me this is what's happening right there. So that's what I mean. I, it doesn't mean that I'm drawing cartoons in my Bible like peanuts or something. All right, let's go to Sandy in Taylorsville. Sandy, you're on Heart of the Matter. Sandy? Sandra D? Sandy Beach? Sandy Pants? Sandy's not on. We're going to Joy in Northern Utah. Joy, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hi, Joy. Yes, um, I watch your show as often as I can. I'm not a Mormon or a born-again Christian, uh -huh. uh, but I appreciate your show. Okay. I learn a lot. Oh, good. Um, I wanted to ask you about Glenn Beck. Okay. Because you've mentioned his name in passing a couple of times, but always in a very negative way. Yeah. And I was just wondering what the problem with Glenn Beck is, uh, besides he's, he's a Mormon, but I find him to be a, a sterling person. Well, first and foremost, um, there are no sterling people on this earth. So the Bible tells us that our heart is corrupt. Who can know it? So I would first and foremost be very cautious of holding anybody up as a sterling person. Secondly, for a man who knows uh, so much about American history and consti the Constitution, and he's so ingenious in that way, I'm amazed at his inability to know anything about his own religion. And so that's going to make him one of two things. He's either lying about that, and he's not letting the public know he knows all the nuances and deceptions of his religion, or he's stupid. So, you know, we've got those two things going for Glenn Beck. Thirdly, he holds up LDS leaders and he cries on his show about what great men they are, like John Huntsman Sr., like Gordon B. Hinckley, uh, deceased. And he uses that show to convince people who are watching and don't know the difference between Mormonism and biblical Christianity that there's a giant difference. He uses that platform to convince people we're all the same. That's why I call him the forerunner to the next Mormon president. He's, he's paving the path for everybody to come along who doesn't know the difference and to say, hey, Mormon president, fine. Glenn Beck's a Mormon. He's a shining guy. Let's vote for him. And so to me, he's very duplicitous. And then finally, I think he's a showman like I am. And I think he's just, I think he's a better showman, but I think he's a showman. And he does things for entertainment. And uh, I just, I personally see him in those light. Does that help? Uh, no, because I don't think that you've really watched him. Well, you're wrong. Um, you know, you, you talk about him <clears throat> being duplicitous about his religion. Yeah. Um, my understanding is that he married, he fell in love with this woman who was Mormon. That's not true. And he, uh, he only became I just told you that's not true. He, 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 he and his wife, this was his second wife, his first wife divorced him. His second yeah. wife and him were looking for a religion to raise their child in. And he was looking, all, I just talked about it on the show earlier, and he was looking everywhere. And he, had, he worked with an LDS guy who was a radio partner of his who said, look at the comprehensive worldview of Mormonism. Well, that fit right down his alley. And, and, and then his daughter was instrumental in them joining first. But it wasn't because of his wife. Oh, well, I misunderstood that then. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, 
I watch his show regularly, and I watch your show regularly. Yeah. And um, I really think you're wrong about him. Well, you I know what? You, I just gave you my reasons why I don't like him. Can you, can you address those reasons? Can you tell me, as a born-again Christian, why those reasons are off? Well, for one thing, his... Well, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this with you. you well, you called me on it. Let's spend some time on it. Okay, because he doesn't... The focus of his show is not about the Mormon faith in it would, way. It would be ridiculous if it was. Who would ever watch it? Do you think he's going to come up and, and wear his temple garments and say Mormonism is going to save America? He's too smart for that. I mean, can't you see beyond the facade? Mormonism is facade, the whole thing, from the temple facades to the facial facades to the facade of their clothing. He's a facade, and you're not seeing beyond it. You've bought in to Glenn Beck and his television persona. But ask yourself, why does he herald? He slips these things in about his faith. Everybody on earth who knows Glenn Beck, I would imagine, knows he's a Mormon. Isn't that funny? I mean, do you know the religion of uh, some other television commentator? Usually not. But Glenn Beck, you do. How is that? Well, how do you know these things that you're saying? Well, I do research before I get on and talk. And I try to find out everything I can. And that's how I know the things I'm saying. Now, why don't I tell you what, Joy, you go research Glenn Beck and you look up everything you can about his history and life and you look at the segments where he tearfully is crying over John Huntsman and over a very billionaire Mormon and whose son is going to be running for the presidency of the United States. And you go look at when he holds up uh, Gordon B. Hinckley as a man of such great honor who was a, a public liar. And then you tell me that Glenn Beck's this shiny man you think he is. See, you really like him because he represents the values you want. And so that is going to make you like him even more. But unfortunately, it's not the values that are going to save this country. It's going to be Jesus Christ who comes in and changes people who then change their values, not trying to change the values from the outside uh, looking in. And they are operating off this, hey, we can save it. Let's do it from the outside. It's never worked that way. It never will. I, absolutely. I think, listen, when you're rallying people to change America from the outside and you're using tearful rhetoric and you're using all kinds of flash and stuff, you know, I could very easily shave this thing, get myself in a suit and start preaching, I am the God of social salvation. Let's take back the country and convince the people with my talking head that that's the way it's going to happen. It's the way the world wants. But Jesus said, no, I'm going to use the foolish things of the world, the base things of the world, the, to, to confound the mighty. That's how it worked. And, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is always going to take a back seat to the, to the glamorous and the, the powerful uh, demagogues like um, uh, these Mormons running for office and Glenn Beck. He's even influenced you. But do your homework. Look into Mormonism. How could you in, uh, appreciate a man who claims to know his history, who sits there and claims to love Mormonism and doesn't even know the facts about what they're teaching? He, he just doesn't discuss Mormonism. Uh, he does discuss Mormonism. He really doesn't. He does, Joy. You got to watch his shows. Go online, type Glenn Beck, and write Mormon shows, comments about being Mormon. You'll find them in there. And he's not going to make you know, a show I on really it. Like you. I really like you a lot. I respect you. 
I don't want to be liked. I really don't. What I want I, is for you to is for you to challenge yourself and go look no, at the facts. No, there's the two of us. Of the two of us, I know what I'm talking about. I watch him every day. I have extensive knowledge of what he presents. You didn't even know his history in Mormonism. You didn't even know his history as a Mormon. Prejudiced against him. I'm sorry that you are. Well, I'm sorry you're for him. And go ahead, look at. I don't think I'm going to change everybody. You're going to, you can be for him all you want, but just be prepared someday to be answering to a Mormon priesthood leader when it comes to governmental offices and, uh, and be prepared for them to start arranging things in the way Mormons see the world and not the way Christ did. That's all I can say. I mean, I, I'm not going to bend your arm and say you're not a Christian for liking Glenn Beck. People love Glenn Beck. That's why he's so noted. But you know, God uses the base things of the world and he doesn't use guys like Glenn Beck just, just do some research on him instead of watching him every day. Well, go learn you some things. Are, you ought to look carefully at your prejudices. My prejudices? My prejudices are against a Latter-day Saint who claims to be Christian on a syndicated television show who is not. That I have a prejudice. Mormonism is not Christian. That's a prejudice. That's why I do okay. this show, Joy. I, I, you know, you're focused on one aspect of this person who's doing hum just tremendous work and well you follow I'm those deeply works grateful for it i'm deeply grateful for the work that he's doing and it has nothing to do with mormonism you'll find out and that I, it does but i your show your it, show helps me to keep keep a vigilant eye on on anything that might come up well you're not but being vigilant enough you need to watch the show more because you're not understanding what they're about you don't get what they're about, well, Joy. The difference between you and I, and I'm going to hang up now because I've taken up enough time. Okay. But the difference between you and I yeah. is that I actually know what I'm talking about, and you've done research, unquote. All right, all right. You're the wiener, I'm the loser. All right, Joy, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Joy knows what she's talking about. Daryl in Sacramento, we're out of time. Kathy in Kearns, Utah, out of time. So sorry. Check in with us next week as we continue to talk about this growing political uh, thing that's hanging over us right here on Heart of the Matter. God bless y'all. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my, I'm gonna break my rusty cage and run. My, gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my, gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my, gonna break my rusty cage.